Father in heaven, we thank you that you call us your children. We thank you that you are our God, that you are our Father. And God, I just ask now as we stand on the brink of hearing an amazing truth about who you are and about who we are, that you would open the eyes of our hearts that we may truly understand. We thank you for the gift of your word and we ask that it would be open, that we would be able to hear from it and receive it and be made new. And we yield ourselves in this time to you now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. So I want you to imagine yourself on an airplane and you're flying it about 10,000 feet. You just leveled off. You left the airport. You're going on a vacation. You can't wait. You're kicking back in the chair. Can't wait for have that uh, maybe two ounces of beverage come so you can drink that. And, and you're cruising at about 600 miles an hour. And all of a sudden, it's made known that the plane ran out of fuel. Some of you are twitching now because that's your worst fear in human history. And you're like, let's get off this and change the topic. I made a bold comment last week where I said that Christianity is not what we live for, but what we live on. You know, sometimes we think Christianity is about what we live for. We live for God, we live for his ways, we live for. And I said, it's not so much what we live for, it's what we live on, meaning what is it that gives you life? What is it that causes you to get out of bed in the morning? What is it that you run to when you're down? What is it that's your, uh, that speaks into your life and gives you worth, gives you meaning, gives you these things? True Christianity means Jesus is in that place, that Jesus is the one who fills you, that Jesus is the one who gives you worth, that Jesus is the one who gives you your value, Jesus is the one that gives you identity. So when you wake up, you engage in conversation with Jesus, which we call prayer, and you are reminded of who you are in Christ, that when you listen to worship music, you can almost sense the presence of God, and you say, I never want to leave this place, this is everything to me, I want to be with God, and you're living on Jesus, you're living on God, and then when you you open up God's word and you read a verse that just speaks to your heart and you say, yes, this is what it is, I, and it ch fundamentally changes you to, changes your mindset where you're living on Christ. If that living on Jesus is the engine on the plane of Christianity, what I'm going to talk about this morning is the fuel. And the most wonderful thing about Christianity is the fuel never, ever runs out. So you don't have to ever be worried. Though it may feel like the fuel is gone, the reality is the fuel never, ever runs out. And we're, the Apostle Paul wrote a letter. It's one of the greatest letters, in my humble opinion, in the New Testament that talks about identity and who we are and what this thing called Christianity is. And so I'm excited that we're launching a series today called The Amazing Christian. And in this series, we're going to go through the whole book of Ephesians from starting today all the way into November. And in this series, we're calling it The Amazing Christian, not because as Christians, hey, look at us, look at how amazing we are, but because of what God has done in our life. He has made us amazing. He has done something that's just absolutely amazing. And when we latch on to that and we understand it, it will change our lives. And so I'm excited to dive in. So let's without, do it without uh, any more time wasting. If you have a Bible, open it up to Ephesians chapter 1. 
If you are uh, using a sanctuary Bible, I'll be on page 1036. If you're trying to get to Ephesians, you want to go towards the back, uh, go past Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, then you get to Ephesians. If you hit Philippians or Colossians, you've gone too far back up. And I'll be on Ephesians chapter 1. And in this, we're going to see five blessings that cause us to praise God. Five blessings that cause us to praise God. So let's take a look. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, to the faithful saints in Christ Jesus at Ephesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens. We have to unpack this. Because once you unpack this and you understand what he's saying, it will get your heart pumping. You need to understand what's happening. Paul is about to dive into something that he doesn't dive into anywhere else in the New Testament. When you hear the word eulogy, you typically think of a funeral. It's the part where someone talks praise or talks good things about the person who passed away. The word, the Greek word we have the word eulogy from, eulogia, means blessing or fine speaking or praise. And Paul uses this word three times in verse three alone. That's significant because that word was a word that was used when you wanted to highlight, when you wanted to pump up, when you wanted to motivate. And the fact that Paul uses this word blessing in three different ways in that first verse, blessing, is, signifies that he is really worked up about this. And the way things happened in Paul's day, when he first penned this letter to the church in Ephesus, this was a letter going to a church, he wrote it in papyrus, and then he gave it to someone who would take the letter, and they would stand before the church in Ephesus, which is probably a group of smaller churches, and this person would read the letter because it was an oral tradition culture. Not many people could read it. And so Paul would sit down with this person who's going to read this letter. And I think when this person saw that Paul opens this letter, verse 3, with these three words, and then he sees, or she, sees that they have to read this sentence, that verse 3 to 14 in the original Greek language is one sentence, no punctuation. It's just one solid diatribe of all this amazing stuff. And they probably looked at that and said, holy cow. Well, I'm sure they didn't say holy cow back in the ancient world. I'm guessing that came later. Um, But they probably said, I can't believe this. This is amazing. Paul is emphasizing something here that is going to be something this church has to take notice of. And they probably communicated it in that way. And we're going to look at what he says in verse 3 here, every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ Jesus. We don't have time to go through every spiritual blessing, but we're going to cover five of them today. And every one of these blessings I want to look at today should cause us to have a life fueled and motivated in worship. 
It should cause us to praise him. When we understand what God did and who we are because of what God did, it motivates us to worship. So I'm gonna begin each of these five blessings with these words, we praise him because. We praise him because. And the first one is, we praise him because he chose us. He chose us. Let's look at it in verses four to six. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. The beloved one is Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ. There are whole books written about those two verses. I kid you not. I looked at a bunch of them this week. Whole books written because this is such an amazing concept and when you grab this concept and it goes from your head to your heart, it will be revolutionary. Here is the concept that before the world was even here, God chose you if you're a Christian. God, if you're a Christian, before the world existed, you were chosen in the mind of God. God chose you, not because he thought you would do a great thing, not because he thinks you're worthy of being chosen. He chose you because of his love, period. You were selected. You were chosen. Before the world was even here, amazing Christian, God of all ages who never had a beginning, who always was, always will be, look down and if you are following him now, you are doing so because he chose you. And then he aligned everything up to get you to the spot to where you are. But you are chosen in the mind of God before the foundation of the world. And if you get that and it gets down here, it will explode and radically change your life. The idea that the God of the universe chose you before time. You did not come to God on your own. Human beings, by, because of our sin, by nature and by choice, are separated from God. The Bible says we were dead in our sin. There's nothing you can do to get yourself to God. God made the first move. And what this is saying is that we don't have the capacity within ourselves as human beings to save ourselves. And God knew that. And so he created us anyway. And he put together a plan that was going to happen because we are chosen to bring us close to him, to be restored back, to be redeemed back. And it's an amazing, amazing thing. We are utterly helpless to save ourselves. I've used this illustration before, but it just fits really, really well. Some people think that Christianity is like a life preserver, that you were out in the middle of the sea and you were swimming and all of a sudden you started to drown and you're starting to go under and someone throws you a life preserver and you swim and you grab it and then that's how you are saved, that you reach out and grab it and that's a symbolism of you being saved. But that's a bad illustration of Christianity. A better illustration is this. You were drowning and you were dead. You were just sinking. You were way below the surface. There's no way you could have reached out to a life preserver. And God reached down and grabbed you by the hand and pulled you up out of the water. That's Christianity. 
You were dead in your sin. There was nothing you could have done to save yourself. That's what this is saying. It's called the doctrine of election is the technical term. God chose us when we were dead in our sin. Now, some of you have been around church for a while. You may have been in some circles and you said, this sounds a lot like that stuff called Calvinism and I don't know what I think about that. And so, and just pause that thought. If you have no idea what I'm talking about right now, you're probably blessed. Just stay there. But if you're toying with that thought and that idea, let me say to you, this isn't about a theological system. This is the book of Ephesians chapter one. This is right there. God chose you before the foundation of the world. All right, this is foundational to Christianity. And no matter what theological camp you're in, if you are a Bible-believing Christian, you believe that God chose you before the foundation of the world. That there was nothing in you that could have saved you. This goes all the way back to the Old Testament. We see this throughout the whole Bible, that God chose Abraham. Did he choose Abraham because of Abraham's goodness, because of his strength, because of his money? No, he chose Abraham out of his love, and he established the nation of Israel, not because they were worthy, not because of their strength, but entirely because of God's love for him. The fact that the choice was made before the world was here is crazy. It's hard for us to wrap our mind around Before the world was created, God knew Adam and Eve would sin. He knew that I would be born into a sinful world. He knew that I would live a sinful life. And he still created the world and me, even though he knew that. That's the depth of his love. That's the kind of God we serve. That's a love that, no matter how much we try, may not be fully grasped. In love, he did this. Now, there's some debate about something I want to show you in Ephesians 4 to 5. When we study God's word, we want to study it and push a little bit at times, and so that's what I want to do here. If you look at verse 4, it says, For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless, which we're going to get to in a second. But then you see the words, in love before him, to be holy and blameless, in love before him. In the Greek language, the English translation is hard to figure out where to put those words in love. I love our Bible translation here, the CSB, Christian Standard Bible. The CSB, the New Living Translation, the King James Version, placed those two words in love in verse 4. Holy and blameless in love before him. Other translations, like the NIV, the ESV, the NASB, they move those two words in love at the beginning of verse 5, where it says, in love he predestined us. I actually, though I love the CSB, think the second is the better. As I study this and look at it and pray about it and see the connection, what Paul is getting at is the rest, as we see in the rest of verse 5, is this whole idea of God choosing us before the world, the whole idea of him predestining us, flows out of the fact that the heart and motivation of God is love. He did all this out of this love in his heart. That's who he is. That's his being. God is love, it says. And he did this knowing what would be the result. Knowing we wouldn't live lives of perfection. Though we're going to aim for that and talk about that in a second. Knowing the brokenness that would still happen in the world, he still chose us and created us. There's a wonderful man who was a theologian in our seminary in our denomination called Trinity named Grant Osborne. He went, he died earlier this year, went home to be with 
the Lord. And I loved listening to his teachings. I still read his writings. And he wrote this about this verse. In spite of knowing what creation would entail and the agony of heart that creating us would produce, his unfathomable love led him to choose to create us and make us his own. That was his plan. Not just to create us, but to make us his own. In love, he chose us. And I would be missing a huge element if I did not talk about why we were chosen. It says there in verse 4, chosen before the foundation, chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Why? To be holy and blameless. In verse 1, he says, this is to the faithful saints. Now he calls them to live up to that name, to be faithful to God. The Christian life is both a privilege and a responsibility. It's a privilege and a responsibility. It's a privilege because when we are uh, trapped in our sin, we commit sin by action and by nature. God comes, and because of who he is, he gives us the gift of salvation, meaning we ask for forgiveness of our sins and follow him. He forgives us. He pours grace and mercy on us. And it's a wonderful thing. It's an amazing gift that we can't earn. That's the privilege part. But there's also the responsibility. We are saved to be his agents in this world, living the way he intended us to live. It says here we are saved and chosen to be living holy and blameless, We're not chosen just to be forgiven for our sin. We're chosen to live holy wives as well. We are chosen to live under God's command, to live in that. To those who claim to follow Jesus Christ, they must truly follow Jesus Christ. That means you don't just give in to every sinful desire that comes across your mind. It means you fight temptation. You go after and kill sin. You live differently. You don't just bow every time you feel like you should do something that's sinful and say, well, that's just how it is, but I'm still a Christian. That's not Christianity. Christianity fills you with this love and this knowledge. You're living on Christ, but because you're living on him, you understand his love, his mercy, and his grace, and that motivates you to say no to sinful things. Why would I dive into things of the world when God's going to fill me in this amazing way? Why would I give my mind to that stuff when God calls me child and says, I'm going to be with you forever? Why would I give in to the sinful things of this world when God's saying, just come to me and I will satisfy your soul in a way you never dreamed was possible? And you don't need to walk in that stuff because I chose you in love to be holy and blameless. You see, it's easy for Christians to be satisfied with a life that appears to be faithful to God, but may not truly be there. We must remember ultimately that when we live this life, at the end of it, we will have to give an account of how we live before God. And yes, there's forgiveness. Yes, there's grace. Thank God. But even beyond that, we give an account to say how we live. Ephesians chapter 4, 13 says, No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who we will give an account. It matters how we live as children who have been chosen. It matters how we live as Christians. In the early 1800s, Queen Victoria was the Queen of England. 
and she took on the throne at the age of 18. That's when she became queen. And it was apparent right when she was about the age of three and four that this is how it was all going to line up, that she would be the next one to take on the throne. So they kind of knew when she was four years old that someday she'd be the queen. But they didn't tell her that. Can you imagine telling a four-year-old you're going to be the queen of the country? May not be the best idea. And so they shield that from her. They didn't tell her that until she was like in her early teens, 13 or 14, historians say. And then they revealed the plan. They told her that she will be the queen of England. And you know what her response was? When she realized that she was going to be the queen, her response was, then I better behave well. Isn't that so true of us? When you realize that the God of the universe chose you and says, you are my child, you are my son, you are my daughter, there is a demand that comes with that. That we say, you know what, if that's who I truly am, then I need to live in my identity as a child of God and be done with things of this world and live the way that my Father has called me to live. That's why we're chosen to be holy and blameless in his sight. So what's in this for God? Look at verse 6. We live that way to the praise of his glorious grace that he has lavished on us. God choosing and saving undeserving sinners showcases his glory for the whole world to see. When God chooses and saves undeserving sinners, it puts on display his amazing love, his amazing power, his amazing personhood, who he is, and he gets the glory for that. And he does this in a way where it's lavished. It's not held and trickled. He does this in full. And for that, church, we praise him. We praise him for something else, too. We praise him because he redeemed us. We praise him because he redeemed us. Look at verses 7 to 8. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. Redemption, meaning the act to, of being redeemed. Redeemed is and redemption are words that are core to the Christian life. Redeemed and redemption are words that have to do with slavery. It means being purchased out of something. That's what the word redeem means. It means that we are ransomed out. We were enslaved to something. The Bible tells us that we were enslaved to sin. We were enslaved to sin's power. We were enslaved to sin's penalty. And Jesus Christ, because of what he did on the cross paid a ransom with his blood. And so when he went to the cross, someone had to pay for sin. Was it us? Should we have paid for our sin? We would have never made it. We would have been in hell forever because of the sins we have done. But Jesus stepped forward because God had this amazing plan that he chose us before the foundation of the world. He knew we would fall, so he knew he had to redeem us. So he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to the world. For God so loved the world, he gave his son. Jesus went to the cross. He was our substitute. He paid with his blood, and his blood bought us out of penalty of our sin, 
bought us out of the power of our sin, freed us, brought us into that. God is holy. Someone had to pay. And what he's saying is one of the greatest spiritual blessings we have is that we didn't, do, we didn't experience the result of what our sins deserve, eternal hell forever apart from God, but because of Jesus Christ, he paid the ransom and we were redeemed. Do you get that? Last week when I came back, I was blown away because it was almost like every song the worship team was singing was in my playlist, right? I just loved all these songs. And, and then uh, I talked to Ryan afterwards and I found out he planned it that way as a coming back from sabbatical gift. What a great guy, huh? Thank you, team. But they played one of my all-time favorite hymns. The line that says, there is a fountain filled with blood flowing from Emmanuel's veins and sinners who are plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Isn't that amazing? It's the only way you're going to be free from guilt. The only way you're going to be set free from sin is because of what Jesus did on the cross. There's another line in that hymn that says, redeeming love, redemption, redeeming Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. If you are a Christian, if you are a child of God, this redeeming love of God will be your theme until you see Jesus Christ again. It will hold you, it will keep you. He redeemed you, he chose you, you are his. Paid in full by the work of Jesus Christ. And look at how it's poured out on you. It's not just sprinkled It says in verse 8, he richly poured out. Some translations say he lavished it out upon you. That's how much love God has. And for this, we praise him. There's another one. We praise him because he will rule and reign forever. Look at verses 9 and 10. He made known to us the mystery of his will. So God has this plan, and it's a mystery. But now he makes it known to us, his chosen children, according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ Jesus as a plan for the right time. Now, in my Bible, it says as a plan for the right time, and then there's a dash. Is that in your Bible? Do you have a dash there? Meaning a plan for the right time. Now I'm going to tell you the plan. And then it continues to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. He's saying here is God's plan to bring everything in this whole world and universe together under the rule and reign of Christ. We are not there yet, but this is where we're going and it's gonna be unstoppable. God has a plan to bring everything together under the rule, authority, and reign of Jesus Christ. Right now, it seems like things are out of control. Right now, it may seem like evil and darkness are winning. We hear about things on the news and we say, how can that happen? It's like we can't even understand. But what we have to understand is that God is in control of all this and he's moving, he's bringing, he's shaping, he's pulling all this thing together and at one point in his right time and place, he's gonna come back to earth, establish his kingdom and everything is gonna be brought underneath him him. And we are moving towards this unbelievable moment in history and future when this is going to happen. 
Right now, everything is broken, undone, chaotic. We have mass shootings and violence, materialism. We have a gender identity crisis. We have a race identity crisis. We have power struggles. We have threats of nuclear war. We have breakdown of marriage, breakdown of family, breakdown of society. But one day, in God's timing and design, he tells us right here, everything will be integrated and harmonized and aligned with the goodness and the grace and the power of Jesus Christ and his rule. That's where we are going. Everything in the entire universe will fall under his reign. Supernovas and snowflakes, planets and potatoes, they're all going to come under the authority of Jesus Christ and be reworked, reordered, repaired, so everything's flowed the way that God designed and first intended. That's the kingdom of God, and that is where we are going. And what this says is if you're chosen as a child, you're going to experience that, and you're going to be on the right side of his kingdom. That is where we're going. And you know what's amazing? This moment when all things are brought together under Christ, this is his grand plan. This is God's major plan to bring everything under Christ. And the amazing thing is there's no evil power that's going to be able to stop it. This is where it's going. So when you see all the stuff on the news that makes you shudder, when you hear the stories from your neighbor that make you shudder, and you sit and you wonder what's going to happen to this world, you're not supposed to collapse into this whole blob of despair. Feel the pain, feel the empathy, have the compassion, but always remember that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is we're going to this place where Jesus Christ is going to come again and everything is going to be set right. Everything is going to be just and all the injustices of this world will be made just and he will redeem, he will rule, he will reign forever. That is the God we serve. And as children who are chosen and redeemed, we experience that. We are not there yet, but it is coming. We can't forget it is coming. I think one of the biggest problems in the church today is Christians have forgotten that that is coming. They have forgotten that that's our future. The church of old used to call it the blessed hope. That's what they called it. It was this, and it wasn't like a hope, like I'm hoping and wishing this happens. It was a hope that was founded that I know it's coming. A day is coming when everything gets put under the rule and the reign of Christ. We can't forget that. Just because we are not there yet doesn't mean we forget the destination. Many times as Christians, we are tempted to forget God's grand plan. That's why this is here and Paul is making this such a huge emphasis. We're like the guy in the downtown bus that gets on and he forgets his stop because he's fallen asleep in the back and so the bus makes their route six or seven times with the guy sleeping in the back and he never got off his stop because he forgot where his destination was. We can't be like that as the church. We have to remember and keep before us God's amazing plan where he's going to come and he will rule and reign forever. And because of that, we praise him. We praise him for something else. We praise him because we become an inheritance. Look at verses 11 and 12. In him we've also received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will so that we who had already put our hope in Christ might 
bring praise to his glory. What this is saying, when we hear the word inheritance, a lot of times we think, so I get an inheritance, I get and receive something, it's flipped. What this is really saying is that we receive an inheritance because we become the inheritance of Jesus. The work he did by purchasing us on the cross, when he comes and rules and reigns, his authority and possession over us will be complete and final, and he will inherit us as we become blood-bought possessions in him. He has us now already. It's going to be complete and made full when he comes back. It's going to be, it's the stamp of approval. It's where we're going. Now, I want you to look at something, because like I said, when we dive into the Bible and study it, we need to grow and uh, understand some things. So in verse 11, I want you to pay attention to this particular pronoun. In him, we. You see that we in verse 11? In him, we, plural, have also received an inheritance because we, plural, group of us, were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will so that we, who had already put our hope in Christ, might bring praise to his glory. Now watch what happens in verse 13. In him, you. Also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel, your salvation, when you also believed. You see, he starts with the pronoun we, he flips it to you. Now theologians have theories on this. Some think that he's just saying we as in like all the church and then when he gets to the people who are hearing it for the first time, he means you. I don't agree with that. I think what it is is when he says we, he's talking about Jewish people who became Christians. Remember, Jesus entered a Jewish culture and he died and then he went to heaven and, all, and he rose again from the dead and he ascended to heaven and now all of a sudden people are like, do we stay Jewish? Do we become Christian? Become Christian? What do we do? It was kind of confusing time. So there are people who are Jewish who said, no, I want to follow Christ. Jewish Christians. Paul was like that. And to those people, he says, we. Then when he shifts to you, he's talking about the people who weren't Jewish before and just became Christians. And the reason I believe this is because in chapter 2, we're going to see that he says both groups of people, Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, are just Christians. They're just one, united in Christ. That's where he's going. And I think what's happening is the preacher's getting ahead of himself here. He's getting really, really excited, and he's starting to show his cards to say, here's where we're going. But the point is this, that all of us, regardless of our, ethnic, our ethnicity, our background, when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you are brought into this childhood where God is going to inherit the possession of your soul. You are brought into this place when he rules and reigns, you will become his fully. We are predestined to become God's blood-bought possession forever. That's what he's saying in those verses. And then you look at verse 12. I love this. He says, So that we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. Paul is celebrating who we are here. The chosen children of God are able to place their hope entirely in God because God will deliver on his promise. And when he says, this is my grand plan, his grand plan will go through, no plan be required. This is what's going to happen. And for this, we praise him. Finally, number five, we praise him because we are sealed with the Holy Spirit Verses 13 and 14, 
This is all one sentence. Can you imagine this? From verse 3 to 14. Now he says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you also believed, when you became a Christian, you were sealed in him with the promised Holy Spirit. He is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession. He's talking about the end when Jesus comes at the end of the second time and, and uh, puts an exclamation point to what he started. To the praise of his glory. Paul is reminding those who are hearing If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are saved. You have salvation, forgiven of your sin. You will reign and rule, you'll reign with Christ forever in eternity. And he says the mark of that is that you are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. In the ancient world, if you received an official declaration, it came kind of wrapped up in a scroll and there was a seal on it. And the seal was a big glob of wax. And in that glob of wax, the rulers and authorities had what they called signet rings. There were rings they put on that had impression and they would push their ring into that, that wax. Usually it was red. Maybe you've seen this before. And in, they pull their ring out and leave this inscription. And it was sealed with the authority of the one who originated the document. It was authority, and what Paul is saying is if you are a Christian, if you've given your life to Jesus Christ, that seal, that mark of the authority is the fact that the Holy Spirit is living in you, and the Holy Spirit's going to work within you to get you to that place where when Christ comes back and pulls everything under his authority, you will be there. And in the meantime, before that happens, the Holy Spirit's there to guide you, to convict you, to help you, to empower you to live for him. It's an amazing promise. We have so much to praise God for in these verses in the opening book of Ephesians. We have so much. We are blessed. We are an amazing Christian. Here's the thing, though. How many times do we as Christians live our lives not even thinking about that stuff? We forget all about it. But the truth is, these are heavenly realities. These aren't just something that's in church. It's not something that's just a spiritual concept I can't grab. These are things that we're supposed to live out every single day. Think about what the church would look like if we constantly remembered these five blessings and they caused us to praise him. Think of what it looked like inside the church. Oftentimes in church, never here in Crossview, but oftentimes in churches out in other places, you hear about fights and dissensions and all these kinds of things, right? Things that people get their nose out of joint about. And you know what? Most of the time, it is very, it's about over stupid little things, over little preferences and opinions. If you remember these five things and what Christ did, that stuff goes away. When you come into this place, it's a place overflowing with gratitude because of what God did, overflowing with love. Now take it outside these walls and what would it look like? What would it look like for everyone who's a Christian to live these five promises at home? To live these five promises at their workplace. To understand that I'm chosen before the world was established, that I'm redeemed, that he's going to rule and reign, and that I am going to be part of an inheritance, and I'm sealed with the Holy Spirit to empower me to live the way God wants me to live. What would that look like? That would change reality as we know it. As Christians, it's good for us to reawaken our hearts into the truth of what we're called to. And so here's what I want you to do as I wrap up. 
I want you to do two things this week. First of all, I want you to take Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 14, and maybe you do this with your Bible, but I want you to get one that doesn't have any markings on it that's plain. And just as a gift to help you with this, if you have a bulletin, I put a copy of Ephesians 1, 1 to 14 in the bulletin. Here's what I want you to do with it. I want you to take it, and this week I want you to read this three times. Set aside time this week. Go into your schedule now. Set aside time three times to read this, and then I want you to mark all the words that describe the blessings that we talked about. I want you to mark that you were chosen in him. I want you to mark that you were redeemed. I want you to mark that you were made to be an inheritance, that he's going to rule and reign and you're going to be there, that you were sealed in the spirit. And then I want you to flip the back side of that paper, or if you're using your Bible, perhaps write this in a, a journal or somewhere where you can see it, and write what those things mean to you personally. Why is redemption and being redeemed a big deal to you? Why is the fact that the Holy Spirit lives inside you a big deal to you? Why is the fact that you were chosen before the earth was even here a big deal to you? Jot that down, write that on the back, and then here's what I want you to do. The second thing, if you're going to do this and grow and choose to do this, is I want you to keep that sheet and then take out that sheet every Saturday night before you come here. And I want you to look at that. And I want you to remind yourself and remember what Jesus Christ did for you and how blessed you are and what an amazing Christian you are because of what God has done. And so that your heart is being prepared for worship before you even walk in this door. Sometimes we think, I'm going to church and I come in here and the first song, the worship team's there to prepare my heart for it. No, you're supposed to come in here ready to worship God. And allow this as a tool to help you on Saturday night already start to remember. And when you're doing that, I'm selfishly going to ask you pray for whoever's preaching up here that they would teach the word of God as they should. You pray for the worship team that they would lead you into God's presence. And you prepare your heart and your mind to gather and hear worship by remembering all the amazing things God did for you. There was a story that happened this summer. I don't know if you heard about this. But in Italy, in Aviano, Italy, there's this old uh, Catholic church. And it's stone and it's brick. It's really hot in the sun. And they, didn't have, they don't have any central air conditioning in there. So they leave the door open, the front door, and all the windows open while worship is going on so that there can be some sort of breeze. And in this church, this summer back in June, there was an elephant that got loose from the zoo. And it walked into the church during the service. It came in, it came to the front, it did a complete 360 at the front of the altar, kind of flipped up its trunk and then walked out and left the church building. And you know what I started thinking about? How many of us are like that elephant? We come in here to this thing called church, we just walk right in, we don't prepare, we do the motions, we take everything in and we go right out with absolutely zero transformation. Was that elephant transformed? No, but you know what? Because of Jesus Christ and because of what he did, we have the opportunity to come in every week and celebrate his amazing goodness and allow it to transform our lives, which would overflow into praise. True Christianity is us living on Jesus Christ. We live on Jesus the Christian life is about what you live on, what fuels you, what motivates you, what is the object of your heart. Let us pray that it is always Jesus. Please pray with me.